Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. <laughs> I don't know anymore about these. Uh, I finally have to realize, like, even though it's a podcasted sermon, um, it might be midnight where you're at. So whatever time of day this finds you at and wherever you are, uh, whether you're part of the Colossae East community here in Portland or listening uh, from elsewhere in Portland or from beyond, I hope that you feel welcome. And we're gonna we're gonna read some more Bible passage today, <laughs> and it's pretty punchy. Uh, maybe I should say it's pretty punchy if you know. In my case, I'll explain this in a second. But for me, it, it's like I can see the words of this passage, uh, but there's this voice speaking them that's very scary. So the passage is like, oh my gosh, that's so terrifying. But then if I really get into it a little bit different, it's like, oh, well, maybe I've actually missed something. So we get to do one of those kind of passages today. At least that's the way it is for me. John chapter 14, we will be in verses 15 uh, through 21, picking up right where we left off last week. And I was I was talking with a friend, uh, my buddy Matt, this week about the, the world and the things that we're hearing on the daily, you know, and it is off the chain right now. The fear, fear is everywhere. You hear one bit of news and kind of hang on to it, and it changes in a minute. Um, people want us to obey the law. Other leaders are happy when others aren't obeying the law. <laughs> you just, I can't put it together. Well, Matt and I are sitting there talking about it. This is right outside of my shed, you know, and we're properly socially distanced and all. I've had one person at a time come over sometimes. We sit around my campfire and, um, you know, wax eloquent about all things life. Well, here we are. We're chatting, sitting under the apple tree. And uh, and Matt said, you just want to know what's actually true, you know, like solid truth. <laughs> and Matt and I have known each other for a long time. And I easily, at any point along the way, we would have said that we prefer truth uh, over lies, right? <laughs> like, which one do you like, man? I, 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 I'm kind of a truth guy. I prefer that over getting lied to. But yeah, okay. So we've always been there, but it was this epiphany moment. And it's under an apple tree, you know, which is, isn't that how we discovered gravity, right? So that's how the, I remember that in like the schoolhouse rock cartoons. <laughs> I've got that image in my head right now. Anyway, we were under this apple tree, and it's just this moment where it's like, well, of course, I've always wanted truth, but boy, do I want it now. <laughs> I want it in a I am parched for truth right now. I mean, whatever sounds so real and so proven by science and so clear, if you count the numbers, count the numbers, it's all about the data, which may or may not be accurate. But then it is accurate according to those experts, and then it's not, not, a, not at all accurate according to those other ones, and you just wait till next week. Just wait and wait. We're almost there next month, next season. Boy, it's going to be some time until next week that we're going to get the money and then open the beaches, open the... <laughs> it's pandemonium. Start school now. Don't start school. We have to do it. If we don't do it, we're dead. Okay, sorry. We're not supposed to be freaking out here. Uh, but it, I won't do that again. I promise. Let's just take a breath. <sighs> but it is exhausting, isn't it? That's the point. I think Matt and I were, were sold on the idea that truth is good and most folks are, but now it's just different. We're talking about a felt truth, an experienced truth, something that is really 
tangibly real. A deep sense that what I know about reality is legitimate. <laughs> and, I, and, and that I know I'm, what I'm doing matters in some kind of way. You know? Don't get me wrong. I, it's really fun to pretend that nothing matters for a while. It's relaxing. Uh, it somehow it feels freeing, you know, but that wears off. It didn't, in, in my experience. I pushed it hard, too. <laughs> I really wanted to pretend that nothing really matters. Um, but eventually you lose something important, and you start thinking, huh, I, I guess I am starting to care about what matters uh, for real. Uh, maybe a lot more than I did when I was younger. Well, I said before, I, I want to read this Bible verse with you. Uh, and I think that it tells the truth and it describes something of reality, the deep kind, a tangible, visceral, like blood, dirt, life, death, sweat, dude, like real life. <laughs> and and I want to say that when I was taught that God loves me, um, I was taught that that was deeply conditional. God will love you if you believe in him. Um, but he will destroy your life mercilessly for hundreds of trillions of eternal years if you don't. And, of course, as he's torturing you, that'll be out of love. And I tell you what, when I was taught about this quote-unquote loving God, I was very uninterested in him because it was so terrifying. Because what does believe in him even mean? <laughs> you know, and who's going to claim they can describe it? Billy Graham, Tim Keller, Ben Tertine, who? I was given a picture of a God who was filled with raw injustice, limitless brutality, and borderline insanity. But if I was going to fit with my family in the Christian community, quote-unquote Christian community, and not receive like this sort of judgmental shunning, I just had to agree with it and, you know, whatever. And so I tell you, the passage that I'm going to read right now from that kind of mindset is this is a straight up terrifying passage. And I know many people, friends, people that I care deeply about, who read this and walk away deeply unsettled. But my goal this morning is to show you how these words of Jesus, the Word of God here, it is so good and strengthening, and it is so, so real, true. So bear with me. Uh, write down any questions that you have, you know, afterward. I'd love for you to email them or talk with you on the phone or whatever, because I think Jesus is going to say something here, and, and it's that loving him means obeying him, and loving him means that he'll love you back. And the question is, well, what does it mean to obey, and how much, and what if I don't? And that question looms so large for so many. So if you can bow out of that question for a second, take a deep breath, and let's just try to focus and hear this passage. Now, I mentioned before I want to read it. I don't. I think I mentioned it before. If I didn't, I'm mentioning it now. I'm going to read it three times, straight through. It's only six verses, so that's all right. And then uh, I want to read it from three different translations. And I'll explain at the end a little bit more about why. But the first one is maybe the most familiar to. I'll read it from the New International Version, the NIV. The second one will take us back to 1611, and that'll be the King James Version. And the third is a translation from the Greek from a New Testament scholar named Dale Bruner. 
And um, you've heard me quote him a few times in the last couple sermons here out of John. Um, As you listen, notice how the changes in the wording force you to hear the heart of the passage. And that's what our goal is here, to hear the heart of it. Uh, Not to just be affirmed with the words being said correctly the way we've heard them before and now we're good. But instead to say, okay, what's the heartbeat? What is Jesus saying? What does it mean for us? And remember, before we go, he's speaking in this moment to his friends and followers, close disciples. And it's just before he's going to be arrested and charged and killed. And he's said things about life and about resurrection that have not really settled with them, especially the point about his dying and going away. So they love him at this point. That's been made clear. And, and But there's this really deep, dark sort of fear looming of like, what is happening? What's going on? And so Jesus is giving them some parting words here because it won't be long before he does depart from them. So that's kind of where we've been for three, four weeks here, and, and we're still there today. But now there's uh, some new words. So here we are, John 14, 15 through 21. I'll read it in the NIV first. If you love me, says Jesus. Keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is the gospel, okay? That's the NIV version. Here's the King James version from 1611. Bear with me if I mess up some of the pronunciation. This old school English here. Verse 15 in John 14. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And on that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Okay? Now, in those first two, and I don't want to, you know, force words or ideas into your head, but for me, in those first two renderings, I think especially the NIV, I have a voice, certainly, that I've heard this in before, and I'm just innately conditioned to read this as a sort of conditional, uh, almost as a way to measure if your love for God is real. 
And that is, in the, what I've always sort of had here is this sense of, uh-oh, do you really have a personal relationship with God? Do you really love Jesus? And it's like, if you want to know if you love him and if your relationship is legitimate, then you better look and see if you're obeying his commands. And then I, even worse than that, I just assume that his commands were the sort of moral codes and strictures of popular American religiosity, <laughs> you know, and they've, you know, they, they change from tradition to community to tradition to community, but they're, they're pretty telltale, you know, you could pick them out too in our culture, the sort of markers of a good conservative Christian. So I thought that if you love me, you'll be keeping the rules of the good conservative American Christian. And if you're not, doing that, it's showing you don't love God, etc., etc. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I'm being a little too much there. Well, okay, my point is, I've, I've heard that voice as I read it. Now, hear it, hear it from a fresh, a fresh translation. I really respect this one. And, and a couple times, it caught me off guard. You'll see in the, in the uh, verses 17, how he talks about you in the plural, you inside your fellowship, you inside your fellowship. And I and it, I was like, wait, what? And then I had to go to the Greek, and sure enough, this is all in the you plural. And then it's like, obviously, I've actually told you and all of us that already. He's talking to a group of disciples. Well, there's a good point and a good example of how my own upbringing taught me to always read the Bible through this ultra-individualist lens. Here he's speaking to a group, and that matters. Okay, so here's the last translation I'll read, and then we'll walk through it a little bit and, and make a few points, which I think are, they speak to that thing Matt and I were wondering about under the apple tree, you know, the sense of so much fluctuation and fluff and unsureness and pain, and like, what can I hang on to? All right. So here it is. The The scholar's name is Dale Bruner. He's got a commentary on John, which is very good. Um it was really cool. He came to Portland and spoke, and that's and gave me a copy of this commentary. And all of us who came to that uh, that talk that he gave, and um, I found him to be very engaging and very careful, and uh, you know, long-tempered scholar. So he's been at it for a while. Anyway, this is Dale Bruner's translation of the same passage, John fourteen fifteen through twenty one. Um, here it is, verse fifteen. When you, the fellowship of disciples, when you love me, you will be keeping these commands of mine, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another encourager to be with you forever. I am talking about the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept because it does not see him or know him. Ah, but you know him, because he is making his home right here beside your fellowship now. And he will be making his home right there inside your fellowship later. I am not going to leave you as friendless orphans. I am coming back to you in just a little while. Picture it. There is the world not seeing me any longer. But there you are seeing me that I am alive. And oh, you will come to life then too. On that day, you disciples will know for sure that I am locked into my Father and that you are locked into me and that I am locked into you. The individual having my commands and keeping them there, 
That is the person who loves me. And the person who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love that person too, and I will reveal myself to that person. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. That feels a little bit different, doesn't it, as you read it? There's nothing in there that's contradictory, nothing in all three of these passages that are saying something that disagrees with the interpretive move of another. I think they're all right in line. But my goodness, it, it's different to hear it in a different voice, isn't it? I think for me, the NIV carries and rekindles some of the feelings and voices from an era of my life. And it was an era of my life that was very scary, where the whole notion of God and church terrified me and viciously hurt me. Um, and I'll save conversation more about that for private discussion. But it was a it was a time of my life where I heard a lot of NIV Bible verses, both in the public square and in church and at home. And it was a time where all of church was so judgmental and threatening and angry and always about this very angry God. So whew, it's really hard for me to get past it. And I really love how reading it in different translations can be helpful. It's not that, ooh, now it's got the correct answer for me. No, it's it just allows me to not hear it in such a conditioned way. John fourteen fifteen had more or less proven to me my whole life that I was not quite believing Jesus and that I wasn't quite loving him. Because why? Well, because if that were true, I would be always obeying him, like it says. And I would always love him, like it says. So I would read that passage and I would be confused and very hurt and worried and scared. And folks, I've I've run into guys and worked with men and women over the last decade who are who are plagued by the gospel, quote unquote. Heavy quote unquote on the word gospel there. They're they're plagued by this idea that they need to be in a different spot for God to be able to love them. Otherwise, God can't love them or won't love them, one of the two. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's the voice of desolation, not God. And that voice always confuses and hurries us and worries us. That voice condemns us. All through Scripture, that voice is pitched as the voice of evil or desolation. But often that voice gets employed with Bible words and Christian ideas. <laughs> And then it gets really twisted for us. So I can start to hear, you know, I read it from the New English or the a different translation, even the King James. It's weird for me and clunky, but it helps me to not hear it in a familiar voice. That's my prayer now. I, I would pray that even as we speak here. God, help us to hear your voice in this text and help us to hear what you are saying, not what other people are saying. Help us to see what's real. Well, I think that the verse 15, the first one, you know, that we look at here is is a, a great place to start. <laughs> you know, whoa, by golly, that guy starts at the beginning. Um, if you love me, you know, if, if you believe me, if you uh, are with me, these kinds of conditionals. Well, it's interesting. I think that verse 15 is probably better understood as when you love me. The Greek word aeon can go if or when. 
And it's kind of, you know, in English, oftentimes it's like, is it if or is it when? Well, I think it's when, we because it can go in either direction, the context is going to push it one way or the other. And he has seemed to already been talking about and acknowledging and taking as a given that the disciples do love him. Um, not as a, he's, he's not teaching us how to make him happy with him, right? If you do this, then I will love you. Uh, he's saying, when you love me, this is what it's going to look like. You will want to be following my commands. You'll, you, you'll want to do that. Um, that's what it's going to be like. And it's not Jesus questioning his disciples' love for him. Like, if you do, pay attention, guys. He's assuming it, I think. The context suggests that. So when you love me, this is what it's going to look like. And I think that's the whole story so far. The disciples, you know, they love Jesus. Uh, so when you are doing what you're already doing in the future, you know, here's what to expect. You disciples are already loving me. When you're doing that, here's what it's going to look like. And his next promise, I think, is a huge confirmation, a consolation. He says, you will be obeying me. Not you should be obeying me like it's a moral command or you ought to be. It's a declarative. He's saying this is the fact. You will be obeying me. So when you love me, you will be obeying me. And this plural is you. Um, this this you is plural. Sorry. This plural, uh, whew, I'll just keep saying it wrong over and over. The you here is plural. So you group of disciples. Um, that's why our third translation chose to say that the Spirit is making his home by your fellowship or inside your fellowship. Jesus is definitely addressing the people, his learners, uh, as a group. So already, by hearing it, without that baggage that I used to bring to it, I can start to hear Jesus saying encouraging words about what to expect. You'll be observing my teaching, obeying my commands, etc., well, but Pastor Ben, you might say, I've got a question here. What if I don't obey? What if I think this is not sinful, this thing I want to do, this idea, whatever? But those other Christians over there, they say it really is sinful. So how do I know who is really loving Jesus? Please? <laughs> Something real here? Because I, I hear a lot of different opinions that have a lot of different arguments and passages to back it up. Boy, that feels similar, doesn't it? I just want to know what's real. Well, Jesus seems to qualify what he means by commands, I think, and we should pay attention to that. Otherwise, everybody wants to throw in their own list of commands and say, this is what Jesus means. <laughs> Let's let Jesus say what he means. You've got to think carefully here, but he doesn't say, you will do my commands. He says, you will do these commands. Well, whatever. We're getting nitpicky, Tertine, aren't we? This is a little bit in deep in the weeds. Well, I think it's important, actually. When you throw that definite sense under the commands, it forces you to wonder what specific— These are that is a way that he's saying these special commands. Jesus has given lots of commands, lots of instructions, exhortations. Do this. This is a good thing. Don't do that. That's death. He's said a lot of stuff to be about and to do. But here he says, you will be obeying or observing these commands, which I think means these special commands. And if they are, what does he mean? Well, I think he's adding emphasis to these because he has 
already talked about two of these special commands in this discourse, this this passage where he's just talking to his disciples privately. The first one that he gave, there's two of them. The first one that Jesus has given them, this is in John 13, early part of chapter 13, he commands them to calm down about how awful they think they are and how lowly and worthless they assume they are. And he commands each of his disciples to stop believing that they're not worthy and to instead receive his love. (laughs) You're like, I don't think he said that, Ben. (laughs) Well, no, he didn't. He got down on his knees and he washed their dirty feet. And he said, let me do this to you. And Peter said, no way, dude, not happening. You're the you're the dude, and I am not. This is the other way around, bro. Let me wash yours. And Jesus looks him square in the eye. I think he looks him square in the eye. I don't know. But I think he squared right up with him, and he said, Peter, you're missing the point. You are missing the point. Allow me to clean you. I'm holding soap and a towel here, not whip, not handcuffs, not a machine gun, not an electric chair. I'm holding soap and a towel and some fresh water. Allow me to wash you and clean you and renew you. Allow me to love you. Command number one. So to obey Jesus' special commands, these commands, the ones he's talking about in this sermon, John 13 through 16. Okay. In this context, these commands, the first thing is to allow him to love you. I don't know if it's wise to say this so publicly or not, but I think that during this COVID reality, this crazy time of life, I have started to truly see that I haven't allowed God to love me. And it's not because I was being rebellious, I'm sorry to say to my Reformed brethren. It wasn't because I was denying God or being prideful or anything. I had no idea. I was given a very, very distorted vision of what love is, and so I did not think there was any possible way God could love me. So how could I allow him to love me if it's not even possible? Well, I'm learning. Jesus is showing me something different through these scriptures, and that's the first command. He gives it in chapter 13. The second one is especially in the passage we talked about last week. You can go back and listen to it, but this is a command to believe, to believe into Jesus. So allow me to love you, A, and then believe in me, B. These are the two commands. You want to love me, obey these commands. What do you mean, believe into Jesus? Well, very simply, it means that you want to believe in him. Yeah, I did. I said that right. <laughs> it's not It's not what many have thought, which is that you perfectly and accurately believe in all the truths about him. <laughs> you know, that's just not possible. It's that you want to believe. I, it's like Mulder. Remember on that show, The X-Files? <laughs> he had that poster on the introduction, the little spaceship, I want to believe. I don't know if that's the right analogy to put in here, but it's it's this desire I've said this many, many times. Jesus is so much less interested in what you think and agree with factually, what you think in your head. He was asking you to look carefully at what you want. And there's this sense of, I want to believe that this is real. I want to believe Jesus. I want to trust him. It doesn't mean you already completely and fully do. Anybody who says that is 
well, I don't know what. They might think it's true, but I don't think honestly deep down it's true. Then these commands are in order, aren't they? And I think that matters. We're first loved by Jesus. He first loves us. From that resource, knowing his true love for us, then we can love others. And we do. In my experience, this is not something you try to do more often or work on and try to add into your life or balance out. No, this, these are ideas are 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 part of a life scrambling that I'm still trying to unravel. You know, I've I've got a I've got to I've got to love others even though I don't really want to and I don't have time to and I just just but I got to I'll keep trying I'll keep trying. No, it's not that at all. I don't know how to make sense of that. This is different. This is a deep sense of Jesus's love for you that makes you realize once and for all that this God is here to save all of humanity and that this God's his love and his goodness is for all human beings without preference or partiality. And that he is, his love is helpful and it's kind and it's life-giving and it's revealing. That he's giving a life of peace and well-being. That that's what God seeks for you. That that's what he's doing for you. It's not until you see God that way. And you cannot see God that way, in my experience, unless you really, really pay attention to Jesus for a while. And once that starts to soak in and it sort of connects with your heart and soul, it's overwhelming. It's, whoa. Uh, but I, it's, I'm, I am now attempting to put words to something that I think can only be experienced. So no, God is not out there threatening. He's not out there with this angry, vicious sort of... Argh! No, it's a warm and deep invite. He loves us, and we experience and begin to know it and we and when we want to believe into him. In this sense, and I think this is how John is always talking about believing, the, the very act of believing is a receiving of Jesus' good work. Hear what I said. Your belief is not what qualifies you to receive the goodness of God. And many of us have, many of us have been taught that way or still believe that way or you know, even tell our neighbors that way. You've got to believe in Jesus, otherwise he's going to kill you. <laughs> That's not it, is it? When we believe, we are receiving what is already there and already done and already finished and already given complete grace to us. When we believe we're receiving what's already there and present, it's not that when we believe that makes us worth receiving it or it qualifies us to receive it. It's not what makes God say, aha, yes, now you can receive good things in life because you have agreed with these beliefs. That's not it. Believing Jesus is deeper. It's a sense that my life is good. It's a sense that I am intended to bring goodness and life to those around me. And this pain and this suffering, though brutal, it is not what I was made for, not to, not to be harmed by or to join in with. Just making it to another day for another song or another beer or another paycheck, that's not all. There's more. If those are thoughts that you've had, you're already starting to believe into Jesus. 
And that's receiving good news. You're already starting to think along the lines of what is true and real, and that is you are infinitely valuable, and so is your next-door neighbor, whether you think they're awesome or not. We all instinctively feel it, right? Imagine if the public cry was, let them die, let them die. How would you feel? We would all feel weird about that, right? No, we we understand, like, let's save lives. Let's save lives. Life matters. You're already starting to believe. Well, but pastor, you might say to me, I don't, if I can honestly say that I fully, totally believe in all, like, if I, if I can't tell you that I truly, fully, totally believe in all this stuff. And I think Jesus says, neither did my disciples, my friends. Just read any of the four Gospels. These guys are not strong believers in the way that you modern Americans talk about believing. (laughs) Not at all. No, they asked way too many questions for that. The question is, what do you want? Do you want to believe that life is a jacked up cesspool of absurdity and, and wanton pain? Pointless, needless, absurd suffering? Actually, I do think... Suffering is absurd, but I had that. Whoa, <laughs> I think I just blew up a Pandora's box. We'll save that for another day. Point what I'm trying to say here is do you believe that that life is just sort of pointless? I mean, we live, we die, to dust we return. No big whoop, get your kicks while you can. The rest of it is just a gong show of absurdity. Or do you actually want to believe that life is good? Which one do you want to believe more? Not which one do you think right now as I say that, but what do you want to believe? That humans are worth saving, every single one? I think we want to believe that. Do you want to believe that humans are redeemable? Do you want to believe that that person who totally devastated your life could be completely changed into a person who only ever helps people forever? (laughs) I want to believe that. I mean, that sounds stupid, doesn't it? But I think it's real. I think if you agree with that, according to the Bible and the scriptures of all Judeo-Christian belief, you're already agreeing with the one true God in the deepest possible way. Maybe something deep inside us is so bound to God, who is our creator and our father, and is therefore so bound to Jesus, that he really is not joking around when he says we will know his voice. The the sheep will know the shepherd's voice. I think that was from two or three weeks ago. Life, love, believing in Christ, receiving his good work. It's all so good. And And that stuff is not making you acceptable for him. It's just trusting about something that's already real. And we have to emphasize here, wanting to believe is a very legitimate form of believing. Wanting to love is a very legitimate form of starting to love someone. You know this is true. When you're hard-hearted towards somebody, I don't even want to love them. I don't care. I don't care what happens to them. Burning hell for all I care. Man, isn't that something we've heard so much in our lifetime? God in heaven, may we never have to participate in that way of thinking toward another human being again. It's not may they burn in hell, it's may they be renewed into the glorious goodness of life and love. That's what we are about. 
wanting to believe is legit, wanting to love is a legitimate way to start loving somebody. Is it not true that all of us want to do what Jesus says, but yet none of us would say, I always do that? We want to. Our heart is bent in that direction. Good. That's that's it. Now rest. Continue on this path, Jesus says, and you will be renewed and restored. Don't push it. You don't have to rush it. There is no hurry. We're talking about indestructible life here, people. Jesus asks people to consider what they really truly want way more than he asks them to nitpick over the peculiarities of their personal belief systems on any specific day. What are you aiming at? When you disciples want to love me, you will, of course, want to keep my special commands. Of course you will. Well, this still leaves a lot of room, I think, to flesh out more of how to know what is true and real and solid. So I think it brings us to this next part of the promise that Jesus is giving. Move to verse, that was that was verse 15. Here's verse 16. Uh, when you love me, you'll be observing my commands, and I will ask the Father, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another encourager to be with you forever. The encourager, he will give you, we, in other translations, the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. In the Greek, it's the paraclete. You maybe heard that word before. Para in Greek is alongside, and kletos, para, kletos, paraclete. Kletos is called. So literally, it's the idea of the one who's called alongside you. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you the one called alongside you. And that is a deep sense of called alongside to help you. All of these commands Jesus has given in the whole gospel so far can be seen as either restrictive or freeing. Some people, like me, most of my entire freaking life, considered all of his commands as threatening ultimatums that would oppress me. (laughs) Uh, But I was raised to think of them that way. But when I learned to see them as friendly, kind-hearted invitations to a better way, then I saw his commands not as oppressive, but as freedom. Verse 17, I am talking about the spirit of truth, the paraclete, the one called alongside. This is a spirit of, oh, truth, whom the world cannot accept because it does not see him or know him. You know, that kind of makes sense if you think about it. The world doesn't seem too bent on truth right now, just winning, winning and winning by damning and defeating other people. He says, this spirit of truth, world doesn't really know much about this kind of spirit. Ah, he says, but you know him because he's making his home right there beside your fellowship now and will be making his home right there inside your fellowship later. There it is, the spirit of truth. We want that truth. Authentic, real, honest. It is the spirit's mission in our community and in our lives and in the world to be always telling the truth. This cosmos, that's the Greek word, the world can't see it. Don't think about the neighbor you don't like can't be a good Christian because he's so bad. That's not what John is saying here. He's saying the whole cosmic reality of where you live can't see it because that is a physical reality. To John, cosmos is kind of the, it's the limited unspiritual reality that just can't see it. A brick can't figure out the Holy Spirit is legit. It's just not going to happen. And therefore, as a church, we can't offer a visible spirit to the rest of the world. 
but we can offer a mutually loving community. And that's what he's getting at here. Your fellowship right now, the world can't see a, a vis, you can't see something invisible, but the world can see a mutually loving community. Now, pause for a second. Mutually loving is is human beings coming together and saying, "You are a miracle of God." My interest in relationship with you is to seek your freedom and your goodness and your well-being and to in no way consume your goodness for myself. So I don't demand things from you before I am good to you. I don't require you to satisfy something in me before I give and love and show tremendous kindness to you. That's what mutual goodness is. You know where my first taste of that was? In my life, it wasn't until I was just about out of the house in the middle of high school, and I went to a fish concert. Now, I talk about this forever. This is a hard partying crowd, and we drove around the country show to show to show, and in many ways, uh, lots of hurt and lots of lostness. But one thing that was so different about that community, more than anything I've ever experienced in my life to that point, was that people saw one another by and large as equals as, as and as tremendously worth being kind to and loving toward <laughs> and and I think nothing has has been more real to me up until that point and now in terms of real life with Jesus and his people it's way better than that when and only when it's mutual relationship and that's what Jesus is talking about here. Not, I'm going to come alongside you and blah, 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 make sure, da, 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 otherwise I'm going to brutally murder you. No, it's, I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to show you what's real. It's going to take time. And as a community, we can offer this love of God. I'm speaking really specifically to Colossae East, but certainly beyond. We can offer that healing, founding, grounding, stable, real love of God that changes and transforms simply by, I think, being this way toward each other and then never in any way limiting others from entering. It's more about making space than it is going out and convincing everybody of things. I think that's right. And I love that notion of making his home right here beside our fellowship now and then inside our fellowship later. I won't go deep on this, but there's I hear the echo of he'll write his law on our hearts. The sense of like right now he's showing, guiding, teaching, training, and then later life with God and all that it means to do and be what is right and good will be totally effortless. No different than breathing air or having cold water on a hot day. Life with God will be nothing but refreshing. So that's coming. I think we will continue to grow in this. To see ourselves as belonging to a people, somebody greater, something greater than ourselves. But already we could see how it helps move away from the uh, language of, well, the Spirit told me this specifically on my own as a validation for like doing what we want. What I mean is, as he is saying to us, um, he will give the Holy Spirit who will make his home beside our fellowship, not in our personal lives. This is the you plural. He's talking to the group. When we see that and recognize our goal is to live in a community, then we move away from the Spirit just told me this for my own personal benefit, and we move toward 
The Spirit tells us the truth of Jesus, not what car to buy or what person to marry. The Spirit tells us the deep truth of what it means to live for God, and then the rest is your decision. And we're participating with God and learning from Him as we go. So the Spirit of truth is with us. And again, building us up, strengthening us, bringing us peace, bringing us calm, steadiness, love in God. The Spirit of truth. And that truth, as I just mentioned, is Jesus' truth. So I think we have to take it easy on directing everybody's life to specifically. Jesus is aiming at something much different and more more important, I think, than conservative pop American religion. And it has everything to do with a sense of peace with God, knowing that we're safe with him eternally, forever, no matter what. That spirit of truth is always reminding us of these Jesus truths. And we know they're Jesus's truths because that's how he's always been doing in his whole story. Knowing that his work is to give this good news, as he says, to all people. And folks in this truth, I think, if you're in this sort of way, you're believing into Jesus, even if you don't get it all. Even if resurrection is like, how is that even possible? Right? You're, it, it, all those sort of like, once you agree with this, just force people to pretend they agree with it. I believe Jesus will show you that it's real, but it takes time. We're almost done. Two more verses. Three. Verse 18. Here he says, I'm not going to leave you. Now, he said he's going to die and go away. And, he, and, and, then, and we're like, wait, what? And he says, I won't leave you as friendless orphans. I am coming back to you. In just a little while, picture it. Now he's talking about resurrection here. Picture it. There's the world not seeing me any longer, but there you are seeing me, that I'm alive, and oh, you will come to life then too. On that day, you will know for sure, and I love this language of Brunner, you will know for sure that I am locked into my Father, you are locked into me, and that I'm locked into you. Isn't that great? You're locked in inseparably bound to the Trinity. Father, he'll say in John 17, may they be one with us as I am in you and you are in me. May they be in you in us together, door into the Trinity. I love this language. If there was any doubt, and surely there is doubt in every one of you, just wait until you see me alive again. <laughs> you know, that's what he's saying to him. Can you imagine just that moment? the game changer of a moment to see Jesus alive again. You know how legit I am at that moment, Jesus is saying, you'll know. And you'll realize how truthful and authentic and real I have been all along. I know it sounds like I, I, I like half the stuff that I'm telling you is just dumb. <laughs> I get it. He says, but on that day, you'll get it. So just hang on. Boy, and that is what happened, isn't it? I mean, after the resurrection of Christ, we started changing the way we record time. It's 2020 today because of a man named Jesus from a town called Nazareth. <laughs> I mean, at that level, the whole world is already starting to bend the knee. Whatever religion or tradition or wherever you're from, you call it 2020 for a reason. And that reason is Jesus. <laughs> That's not a very strong argument, I understand. But it's interesting I mean, it was so punctuated. However skeptical you want to be about Christianity, basic non-Christian history records an immediate and expansive growth of people of the way, followers of this way of Christ. 
post-resurrection. Something radical happened in the first century. Nobody can deny that. Well, why? Why? Because of the resurrection, yeah, but because it was the most real thing that anybody had ever seen, had ever felt or experienced. And if you really think about it, you know, what's not worth dying for if your life is indestructible? If one of Jesus' biggest statements is stop worrying so much about dying, start worrying about living, and living means being really loving toward your neighbor and toward God— and, and, and we're like, but if we do that, we're going to die. And he's like, no, you won't. You're indestructible. If you really think about it, what's not worth dying for if your life is indestructible? I mean, you could make the silly answers, I know. But there's a, if you're totally indestructible, you can come to a place of peace, can't you? I think that's the whole point of Jesus' promise. You only act terribly toward one another because you think that if you don't, you're not going to make it. I have to do this to survive, but you are going to survive. You're human, like Jesus. Death would kill you, you know, yeah, if he didn't love you so deeply. That's the whole point of coming to earth, to show you I love you so deeply. No height can separate you from the love of God. No depth can take you away from the love of God. So again, allow him to love you first, to cleanse and heal and care for you. And that allowing means to stop saying I'm not good enough for God, to stop saying I'm too good for God, <laughs> whichever side of that. It's just to come to the place of honesty to say I'm hurting and I'm broken and I feel I don't feel like I'm pure and wonderful. I feel guilty sometimes. I have a lot of regrets. A lot of if I could go back and do that different, I would. I just and I I don't want to think about it all the time anymore and. Man, the pain that it's caused my children and my wife and my family and others. I, uh, and I feel so unlovable and so despisable and, and, and low. And, the, and then this is the whole point. Like in that space, we're hearing this voice of desolation saying all of those things. And so the first step is to hear Jesus say, no, you're my friend and I love you. So when he says, Obey these commands. If you love me, obey these commands. It's allow me, the first command we set up front. The first command is to allow me to love you. That was the foot washing moment. And then to carry on with his way of life, wanting to believe into him. You'll find that he helps you believe more and more as life moves forward. I think those disciples were given a gift when they saw the resurrected Jesus. And that's what we celebrate this week the sixth week of Easter. They just experienced the most important event in history. It caught them by surprise, and I think it changed everything. And here's our last uh, sentence today, our last part of the passage, verse 21. It's pretty deep. Um, as we saw earlier, these commands are to want to believe, to want to be, to want to be loving toward one another for the sake of the world. Okay, so he says, the individual having my commands and keeping them, that's what he means. Are you in this place where you deeply want to see life? There, that is the person who loves me. He's saying, that that's me. And that kind of person who deeply wants to see renewal and wants to see life and wants to see even the earth renewed into the way that God made it. 
They're wanting the right thing. There, that's the person who loves Jesus. Whatever terrible or good label you've put on them, the truth is that's a person who loves what God loves. And the person who loves me will be loved by my Father, says Jesus. And we know that that doesn't mean they weren't loved until they did this. Too much of Jesus' teaching says all are loved by the Father. What this, I think, means is you'll be loved back in a kind of a special way. You know, I think you'll be you'll be loved in this way where he will help you to see more of who he is. Um It's 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 just profound. Um my back to the apple tree, my friend Matt, he said something that I've been feeling lately too. Um he says I want to tell people more than I ever have. I want to invite them, like for real. It's deeper than ever. It's it's a more real excitement. And I think it's true that when we want to trust Jesus and we want to believe in him and we want to love like he loves, he, then he experiences goodness from us. It's like that's how he is loved by us. And so he kind of says that, the person who loves me. This is the person who loves me, who's doing these things. And it's like, if you know that that loving others and seeking this goodness in the world is something that's making Jesus feel your love toward him, it makes you want to do that even more because it's, you know, his grace to you builds this social bond and you want to reciprocate it back to him. And, oh, it's just a beautiful life-giving reality. And And unless you have it, you really can't want to help other people. You can do that out of obligation or to fit in, but this is different. And then that person who loves Jesus, as we said, is loved by the Father. Um, I lost my train of thought just a second ago. What I'm trying to get at there is that Jesus declares over and over that God loves us. Um, And he shows up later after this in a dream to Peter, God does to say, I am not partial about who my love goes to. So this isn't, if you do this, then the Father will love you. And if not, it's not that at all. No, when he says that then the person is loved by the Father, I think he means an experiencing of the ongoing new love of God. Whenever you're living in love toward Christ, you are experiencing that ongoing new love of God. I see that this is the way it is with Allie, for instance, my wife. She's the most wonderful human being I could ever possibly imagine. And as I live life with her, I continue to experience more of her love, and I know more about what she's like. So when you're living this way, he says, you will be receiving the Father's love. You'll also be receiving it (laughs) if you're not thinking about him at all. But when you don't know that that's him and you're not paying attention, it's in some way it almost doesn't help you much. It does a little bit, I guess. But that's what Jesus adds the same idea at the very end. He says, and finally, I will reveal myself to that person. And I think this comes full circle back to how we started. I, I think it has to mean I will make myself real to that person. And I think that's really important. You will never have a moment that makes Jesus real to you. There will be no event. There will be no punctuated time where you walk out of it and you say, you know, you walk out of some punctuated moment and you say, whoa, now Jesus is totally real to me. 
you might have that time, but a week or a month later, you'll be wondering some new stuff. <laughs> and it, he won't be fully real again. And so the point is this, and it always will be, and it only can be, that he becomes real through a slow process over many years of moving closer toward him in belief and in love. And it starts with wanting to. And that deep reality, though we can all taste it and know it's tangible already, that sense of we instinctively want to save life, not destroy it. We want to see renewal, not destruction. We're, we can already taste this belief we have in God. Wanting more of it brings us closer to Jesus. He becomes more and more real to us as we come alive in his love and in his truth. And so that leaves us with one final major clarifier. Some of you already, even though I tried like crazy to avoid this happening in this sermon here, are already thinking, oh man, I need to overcome something. I got to start doing this better. <laughs> you might not even know what you need to do better. You just think you need to be better at something. Look, this is not about working harder to understand more, to read better books, or to triumph over your doubtless ways or doubtful ways. It's not about a triumph over your bad feelings that aren't loving enough. It's not about becoming skilled in the art of contemplative prayer and really getting deep. I think that's a dark teaching, and it kills everybody. This is simple Christianity. This is a group of people, a fellowship of people, who do not feel very awesome at loving their neighbors. And they don't feel like they're particularly proud of how much they know or believe or even how strongly they trust. The kind of community Jesus is describing here is not that bombastic, we know everything correctly and we're the best. It's not that at all. This is a normal, honest group of people who humbly want something different because the way of the world has been exposed to be false. The leaders of the world have shown to be faulty. Not that they're horrible and we have to hate them. They're just people like you and me. I wouldn't be a very good U.S. president. Brass tacks. Who would? Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says elsewhere. Those who are hungry for something real. Those who are done fighting to win, done trying to prove themselves over against another person, other churches, whatever. This is a community of those who want love and life. And Jesus says, come to me and you will find it and you will know God's presence and you will know peace. I think if we take these six verses, John 14, 15 to 21, wrap it all up into one sentence, it could very well read something like this. This is Jesus speaking. Men, women, kids, everyone listening, let's be friends. And I give you my word that over time I will become more and more real to you. I want to be your friend, Jesus says today. I am so sorry if people have misrepresented me or made me out to be somebody who was going to harm you or kill you or destroy you. Please read my gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hear me at my own word, Jesus would say. See how I treat every single human being I talk to, whether they're Jewish or Roman or sinful or not, whoever they are. Look at how I treat them. 
Let me speak for myself, Jesus said. I can help. I can heal. I can show you what's real and truthful and good. Let's be friends, he says. And over time, I will become more and more real to you. Amen.